This podcast may contain graphic and or explicit content that may not be suitable for some listeners, especially kids like me. <laughs> Listener discretion is advised. You're listening to the Real Life Podcast brought to you by the Thin Blue Line for Women. In this podcast, We open up and talk about real-life issues as they relate to first responders. It's raw, it's real, and it's about time. I'm Tamara, your host. Thanks for joining me. Before we get into Leah's actual interview, I talked to her briefly about what's going on with this COVID-19 crisis and how to lower our stress and anxiety levels. So let's listen to this first from her and then we'll go into her interview. Hello? Hi, Leah. I just wanted to ask you, I just wanted to ask you what people can do in the middle of this COVID-19 crisis to maybe lower their stress and anxiety during this time? Yes, um, I think one of the best things is just to avoid excessive media coverage. Um, If you're going to watch the news and the media, make sure it's from a source that um, gives you facts and doesn't hype everything up and then shut it off and go back to it uh, the next day, a few hours later. Um, what what have you. And then also just to um, think about the things that you can control. Um, don't start thinking about what if or hypotheticals, just what can you control? You can wash your hands, you can do hand sanitizer, you can stay away from large crowds. So just remember the stuff that you can control, work on that, and um, try not to hype things up in your mind. Okay, so that's all good advice, but... Um, I'm not one to stress easy about things like that, but when I went to the store again this weekend, and then again today, <laughs> because I'm kind yeah. of worried, the store shelves were actually almost out of food, and that kind of got me freaking out a little bit. So I bought extra food this morning because yes. I don't want to have to go there next week and not have food on the shelf. So I was a little, wor- I was a little worried about that. Yes, and that's important. To I mean, it is worrisome to everybody that um, we're out of things in the stores. Um, But it's just important to also keep those connections because you never know your neighbor might have something that you might need. Um, Even though we're not going to maybe not be in contact with each other personally, uh, make phone calls, FaceTime, um, talk to people. Okay, I have this many rolls of toilet paper. I have this this much hand sanitizer, (laughs) this much, you know, in my pantry. And just let's just see um, how much we can give to each other and swap and whatever. If it's not in the stores, then um, reach out to your friends and family. Now, what about taking care of our children? Because, you know, I do have a daughter here and, you know, I want to watch the news and I want to stay informed. But should we limit the amount? I I know you said earlier to limit the amount, but I want to stay, you know, on top of things as well. Mm -hmm. And but so how how do I go about doing that? And how do families do that when they have kids in the house? And now it's spring break and schools are closed. Mm -hmm. How do we how do we watch the news and not let them see and not stress out in front of them? I think um, especially if you have um, a smartphone or a tablet of some sort, maybe not broadcast it on the TV. They go to your own personal uh, personal space and um, maybe click on a link um, and read it. 
and and then they can't hear it. Uh, oh, that makes you. sense. Yeah. So then it, you're just getting the information. The children aren't um, go to go on a computer or whatever you might have and maybe read an article instead of having it blast um, throughout the room. Yeah, because it's a little crazy. I know kids, they, yeah. they they act how, you know, they they look at their parents and people that they live with for how they should feel, you know, yeah. and they can sense stress levels. And, and I'm, I'm actually stressed right now, just a little bit, you know, it's <laughs> kind of crazy. So, okay, well, thank you. I really appreciate your time again with this COVID-19 crisis. And uh, we're going to go right into your episode now. So thank you so much, Leah. Yep, no problem. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Today, I am interviewing a licensed mental health counselor, Leah Demarest, and she is from Ohio. And we're going to talk today about post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, and trauma. Hi, how are you, Leah? Good. How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for joining us. This is a this is going to be a good interview. It's we're going to have a lot of deep conversations about PTSD and anxiety and trauma and things like that. So to open us up, why don't you give the listeners um, a little bit about yourself? Okay. Well, I am um, yeah, a licensed mental health counselor and as well as a certified alcohol and drug addiction counselor. Um, I specialize in trauma and PTSD, anxiety, depression, um, and addiction. And um, I have a private practice here in Urbandale, Iowa. Nice. Now, is this something that you've always wanted to do? How long have you been doing it? Um, I have been doing this since uh, 2016. I had uh, earned my license in 2015. Okay. but yeah, I've always worked in the social services. Um, psychology has always been a thing for me. I've enjoyed it. What type of degree do you have to have in Iowa to be a licensed mental health counselor? Um, so you have to have a master's degree. Um, mine is in clinical psychology. Um, there's a lot of master degree levels that are just psychology. So oh, Okay. So what's the training like then after you get your master's degree? Do you have to have a certain number of hours in that state? Yes. Like volunteer hours? Yeah. So you get your master's degree and it actually depends on your school on um, what type of practicum you do, um, if you have to do a thesis and things like that. And then you you do have to do internships. Um, After you receive your master's, then you go on and you have to do three years of training. Wow. Three years. Is Mm -hmm. that full time, like eight hours a day? Yeah, so you're you're full time, um, and so it's it's chopped up into different hours. You have to have so many hours of direct client time, so many hours of supervision, so many hours of paperwork, and all that stuff. So there's you it adds up to three years, but you can do it like you can do twelve hours a day, you, whatever you can fit in. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. And what do you specialize in? I mean, you you just said PTSD, anxiety, and trauma, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're a drug and addiction counselor, which a lot of our first responders go through. Yes. So everything you just listed is is pretty much what our first responders deal with. Yeah, and I, I also teach the um, 
OWI classes. So when you operate while intoxicated, you have to go through a 12-hour course in, um, in order to get your license back. So I do that as well oh, okay. once a month on the weekends. Yeah. OWI. I've never heard of that before. It's the same as DUI. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. In Iowa, we call OWI. (laughs) Gotcha. And what are the different counseling models? If you can run down those kind of briefly for us. Well, there's actually just so many of them. Um, But one's off the top of my head, like cognitive behavioral therapy, play therapy, dialectable uh, behavior therapy, person-centered art therapy, existential. Um, Cognitive behavioral CBT is one where you just you challenge the cognitive distortions, which is basically the negative thoughts in your head. Um, you try to improve their emotion regulation. Uh, it helps a lot with uh, depression, anxiety, PTSD, and addiction. Uh, a lot of counselors that treat those use CBT. Um, DBT, which is the dialectical uh, behavior, um, it's a type of CBT. Um, with that, when you just identify strengths, you build on them. Uh, a lot of people with borderline um, that work with work with borderline individuals, mm-hmm. um, and then existential. Uh, that one is um, you confront like negative thoughts uh, rather than external um, the external forces around you rather than your environment. That one works a lot with um, addictions and eating disorders and things. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's interesting how different, um, models help different Mm -hmm. problems. Yeah. So how do you know which one to use with which, which, with which person that comes in your office? Is it? So it's just kind of, every person's different. Um, so every treatment is different for each person. So you could be one person coming in with PTSD and then the next person comes with PTSD but you could be treated completely different. Oh, so it okay. depends on what your challenges are, what symptoms you're presenting, um, and what your goal is for right. treatment, what you want out of treatment, and then we can go from there. I typically, with the trauma, PTSD, um, those types of things, I usually use CBT for that. So and that's, that's the cognitive always, behavioral therapy. Yep, and that's one where we like we challenge the the negative thoughts in our, in our brain. And, um, we try to improve our emotion regulation. So a lot of anger management, things like that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Is that a lot of self-talk? Yes. Okay. Um, so yeah, trying to look towards the positive in your day. I always tell my clients, um, try to find one positive thing in your day. It could be the crappiest day ever, (laughs) but there's always one positive thing. It might've been, you found a nickel in the change machine or, you know, something really small that you know, there was a lot of sunlight today rather than cloudiness, you know, something small, just fine. You no, know, that's funny because, um, on my Twitter page and my Facebook page is thin blue line for women. I often will in the morning write that I'll say, okay, everyone name one positive thing about themselves, not even about the day. I just say about themselves and it's, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. Have you treated any first responders? Well, that you know of, firemen. I have. Um, yeah. So I, um, I've treated a lot of military actually, um, and um, police officers, mainly in addiction. 
Mm-hmm. There's just so much prevalence in addiction um, for first responders. And we're talking all kinds of addiction, like drugs. Alcohol. Yeah, food, drugs, alcohol. Yeah. Even food, right? Yeah, porn. Um, porn, um, yeah. Um, spending money, any kind of addiction. Yep. Yeah. And what, okay, so what, I'm going to get deep here because I want to know what in the world causes somebody to get addicted. I don't, I'm not talking about drugs and alcohol. I understand how, you know, mm-hmm. your body gets addicted to the, to the drug and even the alcohol, but like, how does a, how does a person's mind or body or emotions or whatever get addicted to something? What can you explain that? So, yeah. So, um, we can actually start out being, um, born more, um, able to get addicted than other people. So if we, um, maybe we were exposed to a drug as a child, maybe we had trauma as a baby. Um, if our parents or anyone close to us were, um, addicted or, um, chose a lot of alcohol, those types of things can predispose us to also become addicts. Um, because that is the way that we've seen other people cope so okay. they in, in turn through modeling, uh, go towards that as well. So that's not like only hereditary in their, in their body and or molecular makeup. That's, yep. that's them visualizing, like seeing, seeing yep. something happen, behaviors. Yes. So it's in your environment and it can also be your brain can be predisposed because if you are not wired, I'm trying to do layman's terms. Um, right. <laughs> yeah, please do <laughs> for all of us. Wired. Like, so if, if your neurons are not connecting, um, so a lot of people that may have a mental illness, they're not throwing that serotonin around in their brain. The good, the feel good chemicals are not right. being shot in their brain at the appropriate times. So a lot of people that have that issue, they tend to shoot towards any type of addiction because you get that high, you get the serotonin high, whether it's gambling, porn, or drugs, as well as um, a lot of people that uh, struggle with mental illness, they also are adrenaline junkies. They like to take risks because they get that high, that chemical high. So yeah, so that is related to your body. That's inside yeah. That's wow. That's crazy. And some into, people, they're just they're just born with that their brain just doesn't fire enough of that serotonin. And so it's nothing that has happened. It may not be trauma, it may not it just they were just born that way that right. fire fire enough serotonin. So are those the people that have to take the medicine then to make that serotonin work? Yes. So, um, medication helps with that. Um, it also helps to, um, there are certain things like medications that also help to rebuild the neurons um, and to rebuild. So it does eventually fire on its own. Um, Sometimes I prescribe brain games is what I call them. So if you spend time doing puzzles and like Sudoku, I can't say that one. I love that game. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So things like that, memory games, um, you, your brain is a muscle, just like your bicep. So you can rebuild your brain, just like you can rebuild your bicep. 
And so you could do those brain games and it can heal your brain to connect those neurons and to make your brain fire the right chemicals. So if I do Sudoku, however you say it, <laughs> yeah, I'm actually going to feel good because I get frustrated. <laughs> well, no, you get frustrated, but that you're working that muscle. You're working oh, your brain. And that's, so that's a good thing, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's cool. Um, have you heard of um, EAP? It's Employee Assistance Program. I've heard of it. I've never had to use it. I've never treated anybody that used utilized it. Okay, so th- a lot of our first responders have that through their work, and it only supplies. Well, my work supplied us with six sessions, but what do you do when you're out of six sessions? So I'm just wondering, like. Um, do you think yeah. that, 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 does that hinder, is that going to hinder the first responder from, I mean, can't, okay, here's my real question. I, I got to get done to it. Can you, a counselor, do anything with somebody in six sessions? It really depends on the person. However, okay. I do believe that six sessions is pretty short because the first session is generally just a consultation mm-hmm. and you're getting to know them and really up to the first three sessions. You get to know them on the first. Maybe the second one, you might do an an assessment and get to know you. The third one, you're getting to know them, but you're diving a little bit deeper into their issues. So really, the first three, it's not really therapeutic, right? Right, that makes sense. I believe six sessions is pretty short um, to say that we're going to get these people completely healed um, in that time frame. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah, that's, that's, and that's what I'm wondering if like, there's something more that, that managers or I don't, I don't even know where, where they would, you know, start, but how do they get more sessions? How do they, I don't know. I just, I just don't know. Or may, maybe that is just to get them set up, you know, with a counselor and, and we're, they're giving us six sessions just to start with. And then maybe you're supposed to just go on your own. I don't know. Um, or I wonder, it's, without having used that, I wonder if they obtained a letter from the therapist saying, do they need more? And if you say yes, then... You know, maybe if they changed why they were going, like if, if they had to write down um, like some code for the insurance to say, okay, well, I was going for this. Now I'm going for this. But still, really, they're doing the same thing. Maybe, yeah. maybe they can go for six more. I don't know. So how, how long do you normally treat... Uh, somebody that comes in with anything, PTSD or anxiety or addiction, like, is there a certain magic number? There is not. um, It's really hard to say, like I say, um, everyone is different. Um, There's some people I might see for three months, six months or up to a year. Okay. Um, So it just depends on the person. Yeah. And there's some people I've had um, that's had some significant trauma for two years. Okay. And that's like once a week for two years? Yep. Once a week for wow. 45, 45 to 60 minutes. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Um, something that is that concerns me, because I've, I know you've heard the epidemic of the police suicides that's going on right now. Yes. It's absolutely crazy. So the next question I'm going to ask you kind of goes hand in hand with what I'm going to say. I am wondering if these first responders that took their lives did not feel comfortable calling a hotline. If they did not feel 
they really did have a safe place to call or go to. Um, you know, all these numbers we have that we can call, all the 800 numbers, the the texting numbers, the, you know, there's safecallnow.org, who I'm also going to yeah. have on here. Do, how confident are first responders in knowing, okay, I can actually call that number and my boss is not going to find out. My chief's not going to find out. I'm not going to get called into the office on Monday. Like, like, so, so anyway, now I'm going to ask you like what Amanda reporter is, because I think it goes hand in hand with what do you have to report mm-hmm. and, and, and what can you, you know, if, if a, if a, first responder gets on the phone and says, you know, I, I don't want to kill myself, but I don't feel like living anymore. Like yeah. that's totally different. So, so let's go ahead and pick that apart a little bit and explain. Okay. So when they call a hotline, they can call and not state who they are. So everything for on the hotline could be anonymous. So they wouldn't be able to tell their, their supervisor that, hey, this person called in and said, hey, they want to commit suicide. Okay, I'm going to stop you right there. How, how confident is the first responder in knowing that you don't have their phone number, that it's not popping up on the screen, and then you're triangulating that to their house? No, they, they might have that, yeah, but I don't think um, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to call in. I, I worked at, on a hotline. Not a um, like a, a suicide hotline, but like a domestic violence hotline, and they would also often talk about suicide and those types of things as well. We had no access on that specific hotline. Okay. Um. So I, I guess I don't know about the rest of them, but most I I think I don't I think it's all for a hotline anonymous. So if somebody were to call a hotline and say, I am sitting here with my gun in my hand or my pills in my hand, and I, I am going to kill myself in like five minutes. So like, there's nothing you can do. Like, I, 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 I don't mean nothing you can do. I mean, yeah. I mean, your job is just to sit there and talk, right? You don't call yeah, on the phone and call 911 and get yeah, some. A hotline, um, a hotline is just for them to talk to make sure hey there's someone that is there to talk to um i don't know the rules on all the hotlines since i'm not in one but in regards to like a therapist if you're calling in for like telehealth um so like if you're doing um therapy over the phone Mm -hmm. so it's a licensed therapist that you have when you're with a licensed therapist, you have to sign documentation with that therapist. With a hotline, you are not signing documentation. Oh, that's the difference. Okay. Yeah. So with a therapist and you're doing it over the phone or via um, FaceTime or something like that, you still have the paperwork signed. And they sign the confidentiality agreement, which um, the confidentiality is that we keep everything private unless there's um, serious harm potential for you to harm yourself or someone else. So if you or someone else could be in danger, then we would try to either call a support system that they have written down for themselves. So it could be their spouse saying, Hey, this person, they're talking about this. You might want to bring them to the hospital. Okay. Okay. Um, Or, or we say, Hey, we need, we are going to turn this in if you don't go and get further help. Okay. Um, so we talk it out with them and tell them, and we remind them of the of the confidentiality agreement that they signed, stating 
that um, I am a mandatory reporter. And as a mandatory reporter, I have to report if a client of mine is going to harm themselves or someone else and they have the means to do it. So having the means to do it means they have an action plan. They say, I am going to stab myself with a knife and they actually have knives in their kitchen. Right. Okay. You know, I have a gun and, and I'm going to shoot myself. So they have the means to do it. So then our first responders should be pretty confident in calling the hotlines, knowing that, that what they say is absolutely anonymous. Yes. No one's going to find out. Yeah. Okay. Because I just feel that maybe that's why we're losing so many because there, there's nobody to talk to and they don't trust the hotlines. I'm wondering. I think that, and I think, um, in that type of a, a position, there are a lot of like, well, I, I don't need help. Or, um, if I, if I ask for help and people find out I'm going to be considered as weak and it damages my reputation as someone that's supposed to be strong and tough. And right. But that's you know, the point of the hotline. If it's anonymous, yeah. no one's going to find out. Yes. And if they don't realize that it's anonymous, then right. yeah, then that's why they don't call us because of fear of right. not only like the, the stigma, there's so much stigma with mental oh, illness. Yeah. Oh yeah. Now, so that's, you've explained man- mandated reporters, but what about confidentiality? Is that the same in every state? Um, I think it's pretty, pretty close in every state. Um, it, there's probably very small rules in each state, but yeah, in Iowa, it's, um, basically, yeah, I don't, everything is confidential unless you yourself have, um, given me written consent to tell someone about. So if they want me to share with their wife, um, stuff that we discuss in therapy, I can do that if they have it written down. Um, and so confident confidentiality is more or less more so like if their wife or their mom called knowing that they come to me for therapy called and said, Hey, I want to know what's going on. If I have a written statement, then yeah, then I can talk to them. If I don't, then I can't even say that I treat them. Mandatory reporter is the one where it says that if someone has, uh, is going to harm themselves or or, um, someone else, that's when I have to report. So mandatory reporter is when there's potential for harm confidentiality is when someone wants information about their therapy, but I can't tell them the only other instance where I would be able to break confidentiality is if I was subpoenaed in court for specific um, things that we've discussed, then I would have to, because I'm subpoenaed. Okay. With that, we're going to take a very quick break. We'll be right back. Have you ever wondered what being a part of CSI is really like? If so, here's your chance to experience it. In my book, titled Through My Eyes, CSI Memoirs That Haunt the Soul. Through My Eyes contains 11 personal accounts of the most grueling and heartbreaking crime scenes I worked during my 15 years in the Crime Scene Investigations Unit. While reading my book, you'll walk inside the crime scene tape with me. You'll catch a glimpse of what I saw, touched, smelled, and even tasted during an average work day. I'll take you on a difficult journey of memories, 
Uncovering layers of emotional trauma left behind. Dare to join me? Through My Eyes is available now on Amazon. Are you looking for Thin Blue Line gear? It's available on our website at thinbluelineforwomen.com. That's thinblueline, the number four, women.com. Show your support for law enforcement and get your Thin Blue Line gear today. Just click on shop at thinbluelineforwomen.com. And we're back with Leah. Um, Leah, do you think mental health counselors are doing enough around the United States to make it seamless for first responders to seek help and not worry about losing their jobs? Um, I really, I don't know. It's really tough for the mental health providers, actually, with all the rules that we are given. Um, so we are given rules by our licensing boards and our states, um, of what we can and cannot do. Um, I think it really all comes down to is information. Um, the more information we give people, the less stigma there is, um, for, for, you know, for people to come up against. And, um, because with the stigma, people just don't want to come forward and get the mental health support that they need. So we, we, so we kind of have to make, um, make this the norm. Like, mm-hmm. okay, so I interviewed Sergeant Manders um, a few weeks ago. She is, when she was on my podcast, she said something. I'm trying to remember what she said. She said that we're the normal ones and what we're seeing out there is abnormal. I'm talking about first yeah. responders. So we're normal, but what we're seeing and going through is abnormal. So we need to remember that. Like (laughs) we're not abnormal. We're seeing abnormal things and experiencing abnormal things. So of course we're going to act abnormal and feel abnormal. So if we can just try to get that into everyone's head and make, make it normal, if you will, for everyone to be, you know, Hey, this is a crappy call. Let's go talk about it. I mean, just say it. You know, no one says that anymore. I mean, they just don't say it. Just when you get off your call and you're back at the station or around the corner parked in your patrol car or whatever, just say, dude, that call sucked and talk about it, right? Yeah. Isn't that helpful? Yeah. And I think, and you know, as law enforcement officers, I think they probably do discuss um, calls to some extent, but I think in regards to talking about their own emotions regarding the call, and that's tough for them to express, like, oh, uh, you know that call affected me in this way. And, and yeah, that's what we need to normalize is being able I to know. say we are human. Right. And this affects me in this way. Of course. And being okay with that. Yeah. What is the big deal? I just don't, I don't get it. Well, you know, I wrote my book through my eyes. Yes. And I struggled with it for a long time. I, I was, I was writing it because I just wanted to get it out. And I read that when you write something, it uses a different part of your brain. So I started mm-hmm. writing and then all of a sudden I had, you know, little chapters. And I thought, you know, maybe I should publish this. It might help other first responders who are dealing with this same thing. Maybe, maybe, maybe they'll read my chapters and go, oh yeah, I I felt the same thing or I acted the same way or whatever. Um, 
but it was, it was hard to talk about. It was hard to, to write and to go through and it's hard for me to reread it. And it's because I feel kind of embarrassed sometimes. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's normal, it's natural, um, but it needs to not be embarrassing. It needs to be just like a normal conversation. Like, Hey, I stayed up for three days crying because of that baby call. What about you? You know, and let it be okay to have that conversation back and forth. You know, it's as normal as having a heart condition and we have what, how, how many different charities for heart conditions and people go on walks and, and our parents have, you know, we have heart attacks and all that. And people get sent flowers and have meal trains for families that have heart attacks. But if someone is in a mental health crisis, how many visitors does that person have in the hospital and who sets up that meal train? That doesn't happen when you have a mental health crisis, but it does when you have a heart attack. So that's just. Gosh, that's so interesting. You're yeah. right. You're totally yeah. right. And you don't often know, like if um, you're at work and so-and-so had a heart attack, everyone in the office knows, oh my God, Gary's not at work because he had a heart attack. He's going to be gone for a while. But if they had a a mental health episode and they have to be gone for a while, no one knows why they're gone. They just know he's gone and we're going to have to pick up his work. It's all hush-hush. Yeah. So maybe we need to have someone on staff at every single department that, that's going to head up that meal train and prayer chain and, okay, who's going to go visit today? You know, maybe every department needs that then. Yeah. Um, I, I would think that would be awesome. Um, another thing is I just, I don't think there's a lot of education um, out there. And that includes, um, you know, our law enforcement they deal with individuals uh, calls, you know, that um, with, for individuals with mental health and they're, I have uh, like, I've talked with you earlier about, I have family that are um, in law enforcement and they had very little mental health training. And um, I think it's a one eight hour day. If I remember correctly. Yes. And so some, a lot of the times um, when they come across someone with a mental health issue, they might think that they're on drugs mm-hmm. yes, or, you know, intoxicated. And then the, the person gets arrested. Right. And so they, they don't have that education. And I think that our first responders need to have the education, not only to serve our public, but to help themselves because then it becomes more normalized for them. They know that these are the signs and symptoms. They know how and why people get them and that it's okay that if you are susceptible as a human to get a mental illness. Right, right. Wow. That's, I just, I'm going back to what you said about the meal trains and I added prayer Mm -hmm. chain and having somebody there, you know, that's, that's. We really do need, so everyone listening, go back to your departments <laughs> and try to get these things started. I mean, why not? We can have someone, even if it's uh, not official, it's just un- an unofficial person that's, hey, you're, you know, if something happens within our, you know, group or our like A shift or B shift or whatever, then you're going to be the one to, to head that up. I mean, why not? Wouldn't that be great? Yes, that would be amazing. Yeah. 
And then once that started, then everyone would jump on the bandwagon and everyone would start doing it. You know, Hey, this department does it. Why can't we, that'd be, that would be pretty cool. Yeah. So we already talked about, about, um, confidentiality, but, and mandated reporter, but is there like a key word or a key phrase that puts you in the position to report? Like what you, you told me they have to say they're going to hurt themselves or hurt someone else mm-hmm. and have the means like, to do it. Yeah. There's not like a key phrase. Like if everybody says this, then obviously I'm going to turn it in. No, it's for me, it's um, if they, like if someone comes to me and says, gosh, I just don't want to live anymore. Uh-huh. That's not something that I would turn in. It is okay. Right. Let's process the feelings and all that. And let's talk about that. Do you, do you have an actual plan? Right. Um, so if, if someone has an actual plan where they say they really, really feel that t- tonight, I think I'm going to go home and I'm going to take this tool and I'm going to do this, then that would be cause for alarm for me to be like, okay, we need to put a crisis plan in place right, right. now. You need, you need to take this home with you. You need to follow this crisis plan. Um, I'm going to call all your supports, <laughs> that type of thing. Um, Did you just call them? Cause I hear sirens in your background. <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what that, what that was. Oh. <laughs> I added a little sound bite. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, but yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I would call, call their supports and be like, okay, he needs to be maybe watched today. Um, make right. sure he's not alone. How about you go and you lock up the knives or you, you know, talking to their spouses and asking them um, precautions. Like most therapists, it's not going to be at the drop of a dime. Like if they talk about how they don't want to live anymore, it's not going to be like automatic phone call to 911 or alert, you know, everybody. It's going to be, let's make a crisis plan. Let's um, talk to your supports and see how they can help you. Let's, um, the, the tools that you want to use, let's make sure we don't have those in your home for the next few days. And, and then let's regroup and talk about it again. Um, but if it's a consistent thing, if it's like, maybe they, their spouse isn't going to be home that night or, um, there's just no supports, right? That's when we would, we would ask them if maybe, can I drive you to, uh, the hospital and then you can talk to a clinician there. Um, so those, yeah, those types of things. And even if that happened, um, I, I wouldn't even know if their supervisor would even be informed. Um, that's, that's always a case by case basis too, because hospitals are also bound by, uh, confidentiality. Um, so it's not an automatic, let's take their gun away thing but it might be um let's take it you know let's put in a plan saying let's just keep it at work maybe instead Mm -hmm. of taking it home with you um so there's just less of a chance that it's going to happen so um it's not where you're going to lose your job it's just making sure you're going to be safe right now last thing i want to talk to you about is um have you heard of the cumulative ptsd that everyone's talking about cumulative um mm-hmm. there's a lot of talk I, about that lately i've heard of um the chronic um okay which is the cptsd 
Yeah, there's a lot of talk about the cumulative because post-traumatic stress disorder, people think that it's just like one event. Mm-hmm. But the cumulative is 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 like in CSI. I saw the same things over and over and oh. over for 15 years. Cumulative. Yeah, that's the same as chronic. For, same um, as chronic, right? Okay. Okay, yeah. So here's, I, it's chronic uh, PTSD and it's, or CPTSD. Okay. And yeah, that, that would be, so PTSD is if there's one initial event. Um, and for PTSD also, like you could be watching a news program and you could get, uh, uh, PTSD because it's just whatever is traumatic to you. So one person can be watching the 9-11 events over the news and they could, uh, get, uh, PTSD. But then someone, um, was a first responder at 9-11 and they were there and then they had to be there the next day and the next day to clean up and see bodies and all that. Mm-hmm. They would be CPTSD. Okay. Um, so PTSD would be just one traumatic event, like a car accident or a death or something like that. Right. And CPTSD is more common in like our military that go to war um, and see things every day. Same with law enforcement, any type of first responder. Right. That would see something every day or an abuse victim, those would be CPTSD. Okay. Gosh, you're so knowledgeable. I <laughs> thank you so much for all of no this. Problem. Um, so you work in Iowa and you can only yes. see patients in Iowa because you told me that that people can call you and schedule a session with you, yes. but they have to live in Iowa, correct? Yeah, because I'm licensed in Iowa, I can only see patients in Iowa. Yeah. Okay, so let's say there's somebody listening right now that live in Iowa. How do they get a hold of you? What if they they like the, you know because people people gravitate towards you know how, how do you pick a counselor? I don't know. I like the way he looks, or I like the way she yeah. looks. You know, first, <laughs> I mean, I don't want to go to like a guy. I would I'd rather go to a girl. You know, I mean, yeah. And then they gravitate toward voice and you know how soft your voice is or whatever. So yeah. like, if somebody wanted to call you tomorrow and talk to you, how do they get a hold of you? Well, there's so many ways to get in touch with me. Um, so my number uh, would be 515-450-9658. Um, I'm based out of um, Urbandale at uh, 2987 100 Street in Urbandale. Um, I have a Psychology Today uh, profile. So if you go to psychologytoday.com, a lot of people go there to um, find therapists. I have a profile on there. Oh, I didn't I'm, know that. Yeah. Um, and then I'm also on Twitter, Instagram, um, and Facebook. Um, my Facebook page is kind of like my website right now. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, I don't have a website anymore, but the Facebook page is pretty much the same. You can, um, find my email, my phone number on my Facebook page, which is, um, the Leah Damaris psych. So Damaris is D-E-M-A-R-E-S-T. Okay, I was just going to say, give them your name, your full name, so they can find you. Now, how much does it cost to talk to you over the phone? And do they need, like, do you take insurance, or is it a sliding scale? Or so I take insurance. Um, Right now, I take the uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield, Villains Choice, uh, United Healthcare in Aetna. Okay, I'm working on um, taking Medicaid. Um, If they do not have insurance or one of those insurance, um, they could give me their insurance if it's not one of those and we can try to bill um, or I can try to become uh, uh, a provider of that insurance as well. 
Um, If they do not have insurance at all, I would um, do a sliding fee scale off of their income. And do they have to supply you with like a pay stub or is it just, you just believe what they say? Um, I prefer to have a pay stub. There has been some instances where that that doesn't happen. Maybe they might not have a job. Okay. Right, right. So if they can't pay, then what do they do? But they're like really, really needing some counseling. Um, I would, ref- there, there are programs that can help um, pay. Um, I, I, I would have to say in the past, I have taken some that I knew were going to be kind of short term mm-hmm. um, without cost. But uh, yeah, there's, I mean, and there's some people, their sliding fee scale was like maybe six bucks. Yeah, right. So. And which is a lot to some people. Yeah. You know, it's all relative, right? Oh, yeah. Um, okay, Leah. Yeah. So thank you. I, I learned a lot this session. Thank you so much. Yeah. You no, know, no. I have my master's in marriage and family counseling, but it was a very long time ago. 2003, I believe, is when I got it. And in California, you have to have 3,000 hours. And I did 500 and I said, I'm done. <laughs> because I was working 12 hour shifts at the same time. And I was using all my days off to go do my volunteer hours. And I went, I'm never going to get this done. And I was raising my child by myself. And so I, I literally stopped. But having that degree, I mean, it was it was like having counseling for two years, it was a yeah. it was a good degree to get because you learn a lot about yourself. And yeah, it was it was really good. So you've covered so much today. And I really appreciate your time. Um, with PTSD and anxiety and trauma, it's like our first responders go through so much that, you know, they can be walking around in our departments right now and they are, and we don't know what they're going through. And it's sad, right? And they, and they don't even know maybe that they are going through anything. You know, sometimes it happens, an incident can happen for them and then it'll take months for them to realize, Hmm, my mood is changing. This is different. So yeah, that's true. Cause you don't notice in one day, everyone gets irritable once in a while. Right. Yep. Yeah. You're right. Or, and a lot of cops drink alcohol, like a lot. Yep. Um, I mm-hmm. noticed that when I was in the department, they'd go, you know, <laughs> the last day they'd all go to the bar and it's like, what? I right? guys can drink it in the morning. That's just weird. Um, <laughs> I'm not saying they all had problems, but there's just a lot of alcohol in, but that's a, so yeah, a social totally. thing to do. Yeah, yeah, totally. So I really appreciate your time, Leah. Thank you so, so much. Now say your phone number one more time for everyone. So in case they would need yes. to get in touch with you. It's a 515-450-9658. And it's Leah Demarest. Thank you so much, Leah. Thank you. Join me next week when I talk with Terry Armenta the owner and director of Forensic Training Unlimited. We're going to talk about some cool CSI stuff. See you next week. The Real Life Podcast was recorded and is being made available by Anchor.fm and its affiliates solely for the informational and entertainment purposes. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided and or expressed on the Real Life Podcast are entirely those of the host, 
guests, and callers, and are responsible for all show content and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the agencies and communities that the guests may serve. Some parts of the Real Life Podcast may contain adult content intended for people who are 18 years of age or older. Please listen responsibly.